Hey, before we get started today, would you just roll your shoulders back, take a deep breath, turn to your neighbor and say, you should really work on your posture. No, okay. Okay. <laughs> Would you please stand with me? We're going to start with a little bit of scripture today. If you please stand with me. This is Luke 22, verse 24 through 27. It says, Then they began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. This is Jesus' disciples at the Last Supper. Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they, call, they, they are called friends of the people. But among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the, the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. Lord, we just commit the rest of the time we have today to your presence, Father. God, I pray right now you would just open our minds and open our hearts to hear your word, Father. I pray you would clear my heart and my voice, God, that I would speak clearly, concisely, and speak what you have to say into our hearts today, Father. We pray against distraction. We pray against the accuser. We pray against any spiritual uh, cloudiness and darkness, God, that would come into our minds and hearts and try to separate us from your loving kindness and your words that you want to speak into our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can go ahead and grab a chair. You can go ahead and grab a chair. Hey guys, my name is Pastor Josh. I get to come up here and get to talk to you guys today. I'm excited about the word we have today. We've been in a vision series and we're wrapping up today. We've been four weeks into what is the vision of Church on the Rock and what is the mission. And so really quick, what is the vision of Church on the Rock? All right, we got a passing grade. Bring them in, raise them up, and send them out. Vision for us, just for our vernacular, is the destination. That's where Church on the Rock is going. And for us, mission is the vehicle to get there. That's how we're going to do it. So for us, what's the mission? Connecting to. <laughs> All right. No, that's a flunking grade. I'm sorry. You don't get to go home for Thanksgiving break. You got to stick around and wash dishes and study. It's connecting to God, people, purpose, and hope. Amen? Can we say that one more time together? Connecting to God, people, purpose, and hope. Amen. That is how we're going to bring people in. That is how we're going to equip, heal, and create a whole person. And that is how we send, is by connecting to God to people, to purpose, and to the hope of Jesus Christ. You know, authority is really just built into our structure, right? Have you ever been out and just about with people and a situation comes up like, should we go here to dinner or should we go here to dinner or should we go this place to study? And naturally, you just kind of look around the group and you're like, who's in charge of this thing? You know what I'm talking about? Like, who's running the show here? Like, should I just go home or does somebody have a plan? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like we look for authority, right? And so I think this is just built into our structure. My son is three years old. He's the middle child. Uh, he is very, very bossed around by his sister, the oldest child. Oldest siblings, give me a shout because you know what I'm talking about. Yes, we are always right. We are always right, and there's no other way. My way or the highway, right? 
You know what I'm talking about. The middle child. And then our youngest child is too willful and too young to be bossed around yet. She doesn't even know what we're saying yet. So she, she, he doesn't have anybody to boss around. And so this week at dinner, we have this, uh, um, I'm not going to say demon-possessed, but we got a real spazzy dog, okay? He's just, she's just, I mean, one more step from the glue factory, okay? And this dog, and she's just always around and stuff, and Noble looks at her and says, Marv, lay down. And she lays down because she thinks food's involved. And he got the biggest smile on his face. Like I just said, Noah, Noble, uh, Christmas is tomorrow. Or like I was like, hey, you can have donuts for the rest of your life. Like he was just so incredibly excited that he was able to assert authority over somebody else. It starts really young. You know what I'm talking about? Amen? Okay. Okay. We're here. We're kind of here. Authority matters to us. It's built into our structure. You know, the moment of salvation is really an assertion of saying, Lord, I'm giving up control and authority over my life. Will you come and please be king? Will you come and please figure this thing out? I'm willing to give up my authority, my willfulness for your command, for your will, for where you say go, I'll follow. And Jesus is bringing up this idea of authority and leadership. And so in closing our vision series this year, I just want to spend a little bit of time in a passage that historians and scholars and commentators traditionally call the pedicure teachings of Scripture. <laughs> We're talking about John 13, which is the foot-washing Scripture. Oh, yeah, that was a really bad joke, Pastor Josh. You probably shouldn't do that again. So if you would turn into your Bibles to John chapter 13, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite passage about foot washing. And so a couple quick while you're getting there, there's a commentator called Alexander McLaren. He says this. He says, nowhere else is Jesus' speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in the upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in his speech. Even at the cross to which they led up is his most perfect self-revelation in act. And Richard Foster says this a little bit more clearly. He says, at the cross, as the cross is a sign of submission, so the towel is a sign of service. John chapter, three, or John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God and would return to God. As I was reading that, I just thought about how wonderful it is to know who we are. Jesus knew his identity. Jesus knew that he was in relationship with the Father. He knew his Godhood. He knew he was the Son of Man. He knew the power he wielded, and he knew where he was going. He knew what would happen. He woke up every day knowing his purpose, his vision, his mission of what he was sent on earth to do. How incredibly amazing to know what the right thing to do is. How incredibly amazing to not question your purpose. I wonder how many times we go to bed at night and replay the day or the week or things that happened years ago ahead thinking, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right step? Was this the right decision? Am I living a meaningful life? And I don't think Jesus lived that way. He speaks on this full authority of knowing who he is 
came from the Father to us to create a relationship back to the Father. And then knowing all of that, let's start in verse 3 again. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God, would return to God. Verse 4, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him, knowing all the power he had, knowing the relationship he had with God, knowing where he was going, he chose to take his cloak off. And he chose to wrap a towel around his waist. And he chose to serve the need of his disciples and wash their feet. And this is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. Did you know that masters and rabbis of that time were not accredited the authority or power to ask their disciples to wash their feet? It's a common practice in this time, this, this Mediterranean time, right? And they, though, the master, the highest form, because your, your place in your society mattered. It, it described your function. It described how people treated and reacted to you. And rabbi and master was way, way up there, spiritual leader. But he didn't have the authority to ask his disciples to wash his feet. Why? Because that was saved for the lowest position in the household, it was saved not for the disciple, the learner. It was saved for the servant of the household. It was saved for the hired hand. It was saved for the lowest person on the totem pole. I want you to imagine for a second why this was so terrible. I want you to think about the transportation in Jesus' time. There was no Tesla, Sydney. There was no 2021 Bronco. Mm-mm. Okay, if you were really going in and you were getting the last years and the model, you're splurging on yourself, it was the two-hump camel, baby. I didn't just get the one hump, I got the two-hump camel. Okay, like we really got the good one, okay. And so you have this transportation of animals walking around and you have their droppings all the time. And then you have no indoor sewage. And then you have the dust and the heat. And think of us Midwesterners who are really comfortable in our hoodies. And what happens to us when we go to Florida? We start to sweat. And think about what happened as a Middle Eastern man was walking around all the time in his favorite shoe, the Birkenstock. And his toes were exposed to the droppings and the sewage and the sweat and the dust and the dirt and the grime. And think about who, how excited you would be let alone touching somebody else's foot, let alone jumping down and starting to wash that kind of disgusting off of somebody's foot. It was saved for the lowest, least honorable position in the house, the servant. Jesus would have had the place of honor. He would have had the head of the table. He would have had the respect and the attention of every person in the room. Yet he took his cloak off. And some commentators say this was a foreshadowing of stripping his glory, putting it aside and going to the cross. He set that aside to take the lowest position, the Son of Man. Why did I make you think about all of those terrible imageries of disgusting things on his feet? To try to get a grasp of how gross this would have been. How quickly would a bowl of water turn from clear to black and grimy? John 13, 3-5 says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything, that he'd come from God, would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, 
And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel around him. Jesus didn't come to just push back on the idea of leadership of the time. He didn't just come to flip the idea on its head. He abolished just the whole idea of what was commonplace in leadership. And he set this up, this new way of living, which he just seems like he always came and did. Just completely taking away everything that we thought was common, everything that we expected and saying, you thought I would come like this kind of leader. You thought I had all the authority that God gave me. I set it aside and I took on the role of a servant. And he asks us to do the same thing. Jesus led out of service. Jesus led by fulfilling the needs around him. Jesus would never let a need pass him by that he could supply. If you look through the scripture, there are so many times it says he was moved by compassion. You know, the thing that started Jesus' ministry in the very first place, which was turning water to wine, there was a need. And Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Can you, make a, you can't go make a pit stop at Walgreens? And he said, woman, it's not my time. And then he went and told the servants what to do. Jesus would not let a need pass him by that he could supply. Go through your Bible and start looking at how many times was Jesus on his way somewhere and was accosted by a need. How many times did he try to get away from the crowds because they were so draining? How many times did he try to walk by when he was stopped and said, Jesus, my, my child is sick. Jesus, this man can't see. Jesus, my son is dead. And moved with compassion and seeing a need he could fulfill, he stepped in and filled it. That's the leadership structure that Jesus gives us. This idea of servant leadership. The oxymoron of leading by serving the people that follow you. It's not the structure that we have. It's not the structure in my mind. The more authority you gain, the more, uh, the more you can exert that authority. The higher up, you start at the, the bottom. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Have three jobs and work so hard so that you, as Dave Ramsey say, can live like no other. So that you don't have to do those things. That you can pay other people to do them. Or be expected the other people do them for you. But Jesus comes in, son of God, God himself, rabbi teacher. And he teaches to set his cloak aside and take on the lowest form, lowest function as a servant to fill the needs of his disciples, those who followed him. You know what's really interesting, I didn't see this before, I never saw the correlation, is about 24 hours after this happens, because this is the Last Supper, another basin enters the story. And first of all, you have at the Last Supper, bowl number one, where Jesus strips his cloak off and ties a towel. And then fast forward 24 hours, about a day, and you have Pilate. Matthew 27, 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere with the crowd and that a riot was developing, so he sent for a bowl of water. He washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. This is the model of leadership we have. Self-promoting, self-protecting, not self-sacrificing. When it got hard, when he saw the crowd getting riotous, 
when he saw them getting angry, when he saw that he was losing favor, when he was scared of what would happen to his position of authority, he said, bring me a bowl of water because I'm washing away the responsibility I have for this situation. It's on your head. You make the decision. And that's not leadership. That's cowardice. And instead of doing the right thing, you do what you need to do so you can go to sleep and push the responsibility to somebody else. Instead of doing the uncomfortable thing and fulfilling the need, we push it off to somebody else. You know, Jesus never seemed worried about the consequences of fulfilling a need. How many times did the Pharisees, the religious uprights of the time, try to set him up to try to trap him? Sending him a man on the Sabbath to see, will he, will, will he heal him? Setting up with questions to say, will he, will he fall into this trap? But Jesus ministered without fear of the consequences of what happened. There's even a story of the point where the, the crowd pushed him to the edge of a cliff to try to, to stone him, to kill him. But it didn't stop him from ministering. Yet Pilate shows us another way out. I think there's always probably two bowls in our life. One of service and one of selfishness. And what happens when we choose not to do that? What happens when we choose the pilot's bull instead of self-promoting, instead of self-sacrificing? And here enters the thing is that the, as Christians, we know we're supposed to serve. We know that there's needs around us. You know, I, I made a, a goal of getting through this sermon without bringing up the, uh, uh, <laughs> the story of the, the beggar or the, the guy that's beaten on the side of the road and the four people that pass him by, the good Samaritan. I don't think it's going to happen. Richard Foster says it this way, you know, when, when we start to incorporate the discipline and the practice of service in our life, humility is start to work into our life. He says, more than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of service. Humility, as we all know, is one of those virtues that is never gained by seeking it. The more we pursue it, the more distant it becomes. To think that we have it is sure evidence that we don't. And C.S. Lewis says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble. He will not be the sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. He will not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And humility goes against our just sin-inherited individualistic mindset. Our culture is built on individualism. Self-promotion, self-protection, creating a sustainable environment around you. Your truth is your truth. Don't let somebody else's truth impede on that. Do what's right for you. Build your own narrative. Your worldview is prime and king and truth in your life. We live in a culture that says we are the primary place of truth in our lives. And humility pushes back against that. Maybe, maybe we do something that doesn't gain us anything. When we serve, some things start to happen. When we start to serve, there's always this temptation to self-promote. Let's go back to the scripture. John 13, and we're going to start in verse 6. It says, When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, 
Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you, don't, you do not understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. So Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Verse 10, Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And I love Peter. He's my favorite disciple because he's the one that just throws all of his heart into something. Whether he's completely wrong or completely right, he just jumps all in. And in the same breath, as Jesus is going away around the table and he is washing people's feet, he says, Jesus, you're doing too much. Jesus, you're not doing enough. Don't wash my feet. Wait, wash my whole body. Peter, what's going on? I love it. But the idea is that it revolves around you. Lord, I can't possibly be seen. You're too high to be washing my feet. But wait, I'm not going to get in. Lord, you have to wash my whole body. And when we serve, we have this immediate battle for pride and humility. It's so easy to serve with the mindset of what do I get out of this? Is this person worth my time? Will I be recognized? Will I find my identity in serving? Will I go to heaven because I'm a good person? Will I feel okay about myself because I've done enough? I should do this because the Bible says I should serve. And so I'll do it to ease my conscience. It's not self-sacrificing, it's self-promoting. It puts you at the center of the narrative. Where humility is not thinking more about yourself, but thinking about yourself at all. Jesus never let a need pass him by that he could supply. Jesus never let somebody a hurt or a pain that he could step into. And he wouldn't do it. Again, Richard Foster, he says, self-righteous service requires external rewards. It needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort. It seeks, to, uh, it seeks human applause with proper religious modesty. True service rests contented in hiddenness. True service ministers simply and faithfully because there is a need. You know, spiritual formation, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, is this collection of the things you do, the habits we start creating, the practices, the spiritual practices we start implementing that eventually become a lifestyle for us. It is not natural to serve each other. We are born with inherited selfishness and sin. A baby does not need to learn how to sin. A baby from the moment it's born, what you all listen for, we all listen for, is that cry that's saying, feed me, I'm hungry. A babe, we do not need to learn how to fulfill our needs. What we need to learn is how to put those needs aside and view somebody else's needs as greater than our needs. And that requires discipline. And it's not natural for us. And that's why spiritual practices take practice. Nobody inherently is selfless, except for Jesus. And so you have this idea as you start practicing service, 
and you start practicing a right heart behind it, and you start practicing not to be seen or known as the person that always serves, or stop finding our self-identity or self-affirmation in what we can do, and just see a need and fulfill it, whether we're seen or not, it starts working into our lives to create a model and a lifestyle of service. But if you think I'm preaching from a platform today and there's a spiritual authority over this, please know I'm not speaking down to you about it. I'm telling you things I'm learning. This week, I confess and sit with my wife and say, honey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I haven't been around more. I'm sorry that I've been making you change all the diapers. <laughs> I'm sorry I haven't been serving you better. This week, I had to sit in my office and say, I just typed. Are they worth it? Does it benefit me? And here's a need that I can supply. And I'm thinking, are they worth my time? Is it worth the energy? And the Holy Spirit saying, yes. Because <laughs> Jesus Never let a need that he, could, that he could supply pass him by. When we start practicing acts of service, they start working into our life and not just become acts of service, but a lifestyle of service. Hmm. You know, I was thinking about this week. The Bible says, do you guys know who the Bible calls the most humble man? Moses. This is pre-Jesus, you know. This is pre-New Testament. In Numbers 12, 3, they call Moses the most humble man on earth. And you know why I was thinking about why was Moses the most humble man on earth? I think he was the most humble man on earth because I don't think he enjoyed a single day in office. <laughs> I don't think he enjoyed the authority. He gave God all these excuses of why he shouldn't be the leader. Moses was one of the most forceful, greatest political figures of our time. One of the men that had the most power in all of history. Yet he hated it. He hated the spotlight, hated the authority, hated the leadership, hated contending for God not to just cut all of them off because of Israel's sin again and again and again. Yet Moses faithfully served again and again and again. He showed up every single day and fulfilled the needs that were presented to him. I think that's why he was the most humble man the Bible claims him for him to be. Jeremy Taylor says that hiddenness is a rebuke to the flesh. It can be a fatal blow to our pride. And so maybe if you're sitting here, and I know that a lot of you practice this. I know a lot of you practice service in your day-to-day -day life. If you've done this for any amount of time, you'll recognize that very quickly and very easily that you will be abused. When you start living a life of service out, it is sacrifice. People will take advantage of you. People will take your money. People will take your time. People will take your energy. There is a cost to service. And it's wise for us to count the cost before we go into it. I want you to go to John chapter 13 again. I want you to back up to verse 1 and 2. 
Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He loved the disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Just a few hours from now, one of Jesus' beloved disciples was about to betray him. Just a few hours from now, one of Jesus' closest companions in his whole time of ministry was about to go and sell him over to those that would take him to the cross. And I wonder, what do you think? If you could get into Jesus' mindset, if you could think, if you were in him in that situation, as you took your cloak off, as you tied the towel around your waist, as you started making your way around the table, I wonder if he saved Judas for last. What would you think when you got to the very end and you looked up and you saw Judas in the eye and you saw the devil there, the accuser, the betrayer, the one that's going to hurt you the most in this life? I think Jesus gave him the whole treatment. I think he pulled out the filing, the clippers, the toenail polish, whatever. He put those little bumpy things in between his toes that girls do. I don't know what that is. Cucumbers on the eyeballs and everything. I think he went above and beyond and gave Judas the cleanest foot washing he had ever received. Why? Because Jesus didn't count the cost to himself. Jesus was never worried about the consequences of what service would do. Jesus' love was obnoxious, over the top. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from God's love. The songs we sing, He'll leave the 99 and pursue the one. Jesus didn't let a need pass him by. And he didn't let the consequences of service stop him from serving. Very quickly, when you start living a lifestyle of service, you realize that you give not to receive. Very quickly, you start living a lifestyle of service, and your mindset has to change from, I gave and I served But did they become a better husband? Did they receive the Lord? Did they start coming to church? Did they stop that addictive substance? Did they take that money and just blow it on booze? Did they take that service and just go waste it? Is my time and effort here wasted? Is this a wasted cause? Jesus came for the wasted causes. He came for the people that would reject him again and again and again. He came for me and for you. I don't know about you, but I know for me. I'll mess up again and again and again. And every time I mess up, every time I have to confess to my wife or my brother or my sister, I have Jesus there saying, nothing can separate you from my love. There's grace enough. There's more. There's more. There's more. And every time Jesus meets me there. You know, I was thinking about this. I'm not much of a musical, uh, musical person in the sense of uh, the shows and the dramas, okay? Like, this has been a big area of contention with me in the youth group because they like the, what's that thing, Abigail, that you like, that musical man or something? Uh, what? The Greatest Showman, right? Yeah, 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 okay. So, uh, whatever. I want to watch Avengers and Star Wars. Um, so... But there's one, though, the, I mean, I'm going to say this, I'm going to butcher this very, very bad. And drama and arts people, Terry, stay with me. Don't leave the church, okay? Les, Les Miserably or something? 
Leighton is, okay. And I don't know the name of him. I just know that he's played by Hugh Jackman, so we're going to call him Hugh, okay? I don't know what his name is and that actual thing. There's this guy that went to prison, and he got off the boat and stuff, and he's traveling back to some place. Again, I don't know this story, Terry. Stop judging me. And so he gets to this priest's house, and he goes in. The priest gives him a place to stay, a warm bed. In the middle of the night, after years of imprisonment and his first time out, he robs the priest, he steals all the silver, steals all of the jewelry, and leaves. The next morning, the police apprehend him and take him back, and they think that they've got him and say, Priest, we have Hugh. Again, I don't know his real name, so it's Hugh Jackman to me. Priest, we have Hugh. Look, he's got all this bag, and the priest says, I'm so angry with you, Hugh. You left without the silver candlesticks. And he goes inside, and he gets the silver candlesticks, and he puts them on the bag. And everybody's looking around a little confused, like, what's happening? And again, it's just this picture of serving without counting the cost. Serving and knowing that this guy might probably just steal in the night. Serving and knowing that this person might just hurt you. When you start serving needs, it's usually people that are hurting. And we know that hurting people hurt people. And you put yourself in position to be hurt. It's okay, though. It's our calling. It's our purpose. Now, you may remember that we're talking about connecting to God. And we talked about all the ways that we become a person and we become spiritually formed and that we connect to God through spiritual practices. And we t- talked about connecting to people and how we change in the context of community. And Pastor Joe last week talked about connecting to hope, how there's one thing and one thing only, which is the hope of Jesus Christ. It's the thing that gives us compassion to go and share his word, the thing that helps us to create a church and to uh, do tithe and to send missionaries. It's all about spreading the hope of Jesus. So what does service have to do with connecting to our purpose? It is the underlying foundation that you and I need to serve. When we serve and we look for purpose, we connect for meaning in our life, for anything other than loving our neighbor, it's self-flattery. It builds you up, not the kingdom of God. If I'm just looking for a platform... I'm not going to find affirmation. I'm going to find ego and pride. I love this idea of, uh, have you ever had a flashlight? You put the batteries in, you put it away in a drawer, and there's no blackout for like a year or something like that, and Finally, there's that one bad storm, and everything goes black, and you pull the flashlight out, and you know there's fresh batteries, and you just put a year ago, and you click it on, and click it on, and click it on, and nothing's happening. And so you open it up, and you pull it out, and the batteries are corroded, and the acid's leaking everywhere, and it's just gross, and you know that you can't use it. And so you have to replace the batteries. Service is the batteries in our purpose. You were made to be used. If that flashlight was in constant use, if that flashlight was in consistent use, that flashlight was shedding its light, the batteries wouldn't corrode. You were made to live on purpose. You have something in you, gifts or skills or abilities, specific purpose and calling to your life that God wants you to do. He put you here to do. 
The thing that's going to power that and connect you to that, though, is serving. So before you connect to your purpose and say, God, what's your will for my life? God, what's the thing that you want me to do with my life? God, can you use me? God, can you fulfill the need in front of you? And you know, we have a whole list of things here at church, but I'm intentionally not telling you the list of things that we need here today because I, it's not a ploy to get you to go serve in Kids on the Rock, but I do want you to serve in Kids on the Rock, so go down there and sign up today. It's not a ploy to get more volunteers here today. This is a heart change, a lifestyle that Jesus Christ himself calls us to. He says, back all the way back up in Luke, who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, and he's talking about himself, but not here, for I am among you as the one who serves. John 13, 15 says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Pastor Joe has this saying. He says, we are only more people and more resources away from doing more ministry. There is always need around us. There is always need around us. There is always need around us. You do not need to go looking for it. It will find you. But will you give the time of day? Will Pastor Josh give the time of day? Will Pastor Josh be able to get over self? Will Pastor Josh say, I don't care what the cost is, I can serve. This is a side tangent. I wasn't thinking about doing this, but I just feel like we have to rabbit trail for just a second. Husbands and fathers, do not sacrifice your family for ministry. Your first and primary call is to your wife and to your children. Sacrifice your pleasure. Sacrifice your desire. Sacrifice your time. You're still going to get people in need. But make sure the first place you're laying your life down is for your spouse. Can you sacrifice your desire and wants? Make sure the first place of service is to your kids. Make sure you don't just do a bunch of good things for God and sacrifice your kids in the process. I've seen too many kids in ministry burn out because their parents got caught up doing good things for God and sacrificed the kids along the way. You are called to love your family. Lead them well. Show them what sacrificing humility looks like. It's a hard calling. And again, I'm not preaching from a platform at you. Because Pastor Josh messes it up every time he talks about service and telling me to be a good father. Pastor Josh has to go on Saturday morning, confess to his wife and say, I'm sorry I'm not serving you well. I'm sorry I put these things in front of you. I'm sorry I put my desires and wants in front of you. But if there's enough grace for me, by God, there's enough grace for you. Amen. We're going to pause there, I think.
you just stand with me? Altar team, you can come forward. We'll just create a space and a little bit of time for anointing, just a little bit of time for seeking, a little time for worship, and possibly a little time for confession. The altar team's up here. We're going to go back into a song for a little bit. The band's going to play behind. Um, I don't care if you come up for prayer or not. It's just available to you. If you're looking for healing, if you're asking for somebody to partner with you into your situation, if God or the Holy Spirit's bringing up areas in your life that you knew that you should have done a little bit differently, there's grace for you. And sometimes it helps when you confess that to a brother or a sister and they can pray into the situation and assert, hey, you're a good dad, you're a good mom. God's calling you to something good and you've got this. And so the altar's open. And we're gonna go back into prayer and worship, but let me just pray over you before Cindy and the team come forward. Father, I pray you just start working on our hearts, God. This can be a hard message, Father, because pride's involved. This can be a hard message, God, because we immediately want to just start justifying why we are good enough, why we have done enough, that we are hidden enough, that our motives are pure, Father. Lord, I pray that we would just start working in an open space, that we're open to your speaking, Father. God, if anybody feels condemnation today, I rebuke that spirit in Jesus' name. God, I pray that your spirit of grace and love would flood our hearts right now, that peace would come right now, God, that guilt or depression and shame would go, Father. None of those things are from you. Holy Spirit, we just give you this moment in Jesus' name.